0: Uh, here we are. It's Mark chapter 14, and we're turning a page. Uh, for the last couple of months, it seems like we've been looking at Jesus, who has been teaching in the temple, and and he's been going around doing miracles, and everyone's amazed by him. But now it it turns, and chapters 14, 15, and 16 are going to look at Jesus and the last couple of days of his life. And so Mark takes a quick turn. And he points us to where Jesus is headed. He's headed towards his death. And so what he gives us is the inside scoop. Chapters 14 and 15, the beginning of 16, are insider information. Uh, Jesus isn't in public anymore. He's not out with the crowds. He's with his 12 disciples and a few other people. And Mark pens what Peter, one of the closest followers, saw. What happened in Jesus' last 72 ours. Now, what we see here this morning, and I want us to think about it, we actually see two encounters smashed together, put together. Mark has done this all throughout his gospel. He takes one story, and instead of giving you the whole thing, in the middle of it, he throws something that has nothing to do with the other. But what we see is, in order to understand the first part of the story, which you see at the beginning and the end, you got to look at what happens in the middle. For those who study theology, it's called a Markin sandwich, the outside bread, so to speak. You only get that when you look at what is in the middle. So let's look at the outside first, and then we're going to look at the inside to see what he's saying. Outside, verses 1 and 2 of 14. It's the Passover and the Feast of unleavened Bread, and it was only two days away. So, Mark marks out the time. It's Wednesday. And so Jesus is going to die on Friday. It's Holy Week that we look back at. And so what is happening on Wednesday? The chief priests, teachers of the law, are scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. So who's responsible for the death of Jesus? It's not the Jewish people. Mark makes it really clear here. It's not the ordinary, on-the-street follower of God. It is a group of people, the Sanhedrin, the 70 leaders. It's the top of the top, and they're scheming to kill Jesus. But what do they say? Not during the festival, or the people may riot. And so this is the biggest celebration. For us, like, it's Rose Festival here. How many of you were at the thing last night? I was trying to figure out this message. How many of you went to the parade or whatever last night that marked it out? Yeah, were there a lot of people there? Yeah, a lot. We we have a huge crowd for Rose Festival. Well, let's look at Jerusalem. They don't know exactly how many people were there at the time of Jesus. Some would guess between eighty to one hundred twenty thousand people lived in Jerusalem, but some eighty-five to three hundred thousand pilgrims came into one city for this one week. It's huge, and so people are sleeping. Everywhere. And there are animals because they're bringing things for sacrifice. Animals for sacrifice. So there's more people. There's more animals. The city is bustling. And at the same time, one small group of people is looking for a way to pull Jesus aside and slaughter him. But they know that the crowds love Jesus. And so if they, if they pull Jesus in public, it's going to go south for them. He's going to perform a miracle. He's going to stump them. So they look for a way to pull him aside. How do they do that? Go down to verse 10. Because that's really one story. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 are the first story. Verse 10 says Judas Iscariot. He was one of the 12. And when the chief priest um, went to betray Jesus to them. So Judas is going to be the key. Judas does not come up with the scheme to kill Jesus. It's the chief priests. It's the teachers of the law. It's those religious leaders who hated Jesus for what he said and did. But they find an insider. They find that Judas is the weak one. So they approach each other. In verse 11, they were delighted to hear that Judas is on their side. and They promised to give him money. And so they watch for an opportunity to hand him over. So the story is really simple. Mark wants everyone to know Jesus is going to go to the cross. This group of leaders are the ones scheming it. And Judas is going to be not a puppet. He's going to be a collaborator. He's going to turn, go with the uh, Jewish leaders, and betray Jesus. Well, that's one part of the story. But let's think about the timing, Passover. This isn't insignificant. It's the biggest religious celebration of the year. And what are they remembering? Again, for us, this is so foreign. But this is the high point of the year where the people of God come to remember remember the Passover. Read Exodus chapters 1 through 12 in the Old Testament, and you see that it is remembering God's great deliverance. Passover is the memorial. It's what God said to do every year. Don't forget that I didn't forget you. So Passover is a celebration where God finds his people, Israel, They're enslaved in Egypt, and they're crying out in misery, God deliver us. And God hears their cry. He sends Moses and says, go to Pharaoh, the Egyptian leader, and say, let my people go. And and Pharaoh won't listen to you, but I will deliver you, my people, with a strong arm. You will Plunder, you'll steal all the goods. I'm going to give you not just freedom, I'm going to give you all the material wealth. I'm going to send you to the land. You're my people. I love you. Watch me at work. And so, Passover is a celebration of the final of these plagues. God showed signs to Pharaoh and all of their false gods that the Creator is the one true God. And so, all of their gods, so to speak, their statues, their idols, God, the creator, matched it and defeated their gods. And in the final act, there was going to be death. Because Pharaoh was so resistant, so full of sin, so harboring against the creator in his heart, that God warned him, if you don't let my people go, every firstborn within Egypt's household will be destroyed. It will be the ultimate sign. If you resist me, you will experience that resistance, and that will be death. And so we remember the story, God created a way of escape for Israel. And so he promised through Moses, if you take a one-year-old perfect animal, a lamb, and you kill it and put its blood over the doorpost of your house, you and everyone inside your house will be free. You will be saved. You will be safe. And. Death will not come to you. It will come to those who disobey, but it will not come to you. And you know you've read Exodus 1 through 12. The people of God obey God. They sacrifice the Passover lamb. They put the blood over their doorposts, and God delivers them. Egypt is destroyed, but the people rise up, and they leave quickly. God says, okay, now that Egypt realizes who I am, get up. Quickly, grab all your belongings. Oh, grab Egypt's gold and and all their animals. I'm setting you free. And in that night, an entire group of people were set free by God and pointed towards the land of promise and blessing where the temple was later built here in Jerusalem. So that's the backstory. And and these are two different celebrations. The Passover was celebrating God's deliverance. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long party to remember that God brought his people out and he did it quickly. It didn't take 30 years to be set free. How long does it take for a nation to be free? Think about it. How long did it take for America to be free from Britain? How long does it take for any country to be free from another power? It takes months. It takes years of war or political wrangling. But in one moment and in one day, God sets his people free. And so the celebration, Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they merged by the time of Jesus into one. They became one long eight-day party. It started with Passover, and they went straight into a week of celebration, remembering God's faithfulness, God's goodness, and God's quick deliverance. Now, why is that important? Because by the time of Jesus, there were many people who were looking for God to raise up another deliverer like Moses. They called him Messiah. Messiah. They believed that just like happened in Passover, centuries prior, that God would send another deliverer. Messiah would come and he would lead God's people into freedom again because they're under Roman tyranny. They're under Roman rule. They don't have their own land and they feel shackled. But God, will you? So people coming to Jerusalem each year, some of them are waiting. They're worshiping. They're expecting God during the Passover, deliver us one more time. And if you've ever been in a bind, what do you do? You remember what God has done in the past, don't you? You ever been stuck? You don't know what to do? You're, you're feeling like, well, where do I go? God, where are you? You look back and you see God's faithfulness and that gives you a bit of hope. If God was faithful, God will be faithful. So people are looking for the day that God would be faithful to them again. So here's what we're going to see. What we're going to see is the people who should be looking for Messiah, should be looking for God's deliverance, the the people who are most on the inside track, so to speak, are really on the outside. And it's the weak, the broken, the people you wouldn't expect, the people that should be on the outside, they're going to be the close ones, the insiders. It's a flip. The two stories help you understand one another. And how do I know that? Verse 3. Look at Mark 14, verse 3. So the outside is going to help us understand the inside. Look at verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Pause. Simon the leper. Who's Simon the leper? We don't know. But we do know that leprosy is a disease that's seen as a curse of God. So anyone with leprosy would be pushed out of the community until they're clean and certified that they don't have this disease which can spread like wildfire and everyone could get it. So Simon the leper, Jesus is in the home of someone who has had a horrific disease. What does it say? It says he doesn't have leprosy anymore. He's been healed. We don't know how, we don't know by whom, but, but evidently there's a connection to Jesus. But we do know that leprosy has a stigma about it. And so Simon is still known, even though he's clean now, as the leper. That's how he's addressed. And so this is the kind of guy that wouldn't be the most appropriate person to bring in a Jewish rabbi like Jesus, but someone who should be on the outside, what we already see, he's on the inside. He's with Jesus. So verse 3, he's reclining at the table of Simon the leper. And then a woman comes in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. It's shipped in all the way from India. It's hyper expensive. It's probably her family inheritance. It's her most prized possession. Think of the most important thing to you. It may be immaterial called an IRA or a retirement account like you can 't touch it right now it 's on your computer screen it could be it could be that piece of jewelry that has most value. Think of the most important thing for you. Well she comes to Jesus and she presents this. What does she do? She broke the jar and poured out the perfume on his head she doesn't she doesn't. Take a little bit of a drip. If you have the most expensive perfume, we know it's worth a year's wages. How much did you make last year? At the count of three, I want everyone to shout out exactly what you made pre-tax, pre-medical coverage. At the, at the, anyway, don't do that. Anyway, think of how, every dollar you made last year, giving it and pouring it out in one shot to one man in one house. This is crazy. Why doesn't she just drip a little bit? Now, in in their culture, if you're in the home of a very rich person, and it's a very big banquet, a guest of honor, you may anoint their head with oil. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of God's blessing. It's a sign of favor. Like the kings of old were anointed on their head as a sign of God's blessing on them. You may, culturally, it's kind of a nice thing to do. You may pour some oil on a guest of honor's head. What does she do? She's ridiculous. She goes all out. She smashes the jar, never to be used again. She goes 100%. She's all in. She pours it on Jesus. And so what we're supposed to see is a contrast. I want you to think about this. Chief priests, teachers of the law, are scheming against Jesus. Judas, on the bottom end of the story, one of the 12... The people, now by the way, the chief priests, teachers of the law, these are good guys. These are the guys you want to be. These are your idols. These are your role models. You want to be as holy as them. You want to be as close as Judas. These are respectable people, and every single one of them is pointed in the wrong direction. And this woman, we don't even know her name. She's ridiculous in her worship, and she pours out 100% on to Jesus, and, and, and she breaks the jar. I love this. It's not just an act of, uh, of accident. It's not just an act where she's being melancholic. She, she smashes and gives, and she's 100% in, and I think it's a picture of what worship really looks like. What we're going to see on the inside of the story is what genuine, heartfelt, authentic worship is like. You see, the guys on the outside of the story, they are connected to Jesus by name. Chief priests, teachers of the law. Jesus is in that kind of camp. He's a religious leader. Judas is one of the 12, one of the appointed apostles sent by God. But there's something wrong with all of them. Yet there's something right with her. Now, how do we know there's something wrong with them? Look at the response of the people in the room. Verse 4. So, um, some of them present, they, uh, they were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume?" It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Literally, they flared their nostrils. You could translate this: they snorted at her. Come on, all right, on the count of three. Come on, I want to see your best snort. We're gonna snort for the good news. You ready? One, two, three. Give me your snort. Okay, Kurt, that was just way too good. That was freaky. Okay, it's what it's what Kurt does. Yeah. So they snorted. They like. You ever just be so I've ever just been so mad that you see it in your face? You know, those of you who are kids and you got parents, you know what really makes them mad, and when they give you the stink eye, the evil eye, or whatever, or they call you by your full name, you just know you're in trouble. Well, this is their attitude towards her. Now, what has she done? Did she take someone else's perfume? Yes or no? No, it's hers. It's it's her gift, it's her. It's hers to to donate, it's hers to sell, but they see what she's doing as a waste of time and a waste of money. We were at the Karsh wedding yesterday, and it was so beautiful. When you think about a wedding and how much time and attention to the flowers, to the food, to the dress, to to everything, it's it's organized down to the minute. And why? The, the, The bride and the groom, let's just face it, they're worth it, right? Maybe not every day, but at least for that one day. For that one day, this ordinary man and woman are transformed into superstars, and their name's on everything, and everyone writes notes to them in the book, and everyone brings, or most people bring a present, and you, you clap, and you celebrate, and you cling glasses, kiss again, kiss again. You, you, you do it all because they're worth it. What are these leaders saying about Jesus? You're not worth it. You should have sold this and done something good with it. Jesus is no guest of honor. Jesus isn't worth it. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't hit them. He should, but he doesn't hit them. Verse six, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done something beautiful for me. And you don't get it, but Jesus gets it. The poor you'll have with you Always, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Verse eight, she did what she could. And I love that line. This is so telling. What's genuine, authentic worship to Jesus? What's beautiful in a sight? What is it that you can walk out of here knowing that God is thrilled with what you're doing? It's when you take what you have and you do what you can. She did what she could. This is so practical. It's not ethereal. It's not even mystical. She had something to give, and she gives it lavishly to honor Jesus as the most supreme guest. And Jesus does something. She doesn't even realize how significant her sacrifice is. She doesn't realize how beautiful this is, but Jesus gets it. She did what she could. She poured out, and Jesus interprets this. Look at this. She poured out perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial, which makes no sense to them. This makes absolutely no sense. But, but Jesus says, she's done something which you don't even understand the significance of. I'm going to be buried. And she's, she's prepared my body for burial. Truly, I tell you, whatever, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, so they're in Jerusalem, small place, and, and, and it's not the center of the world, Rome is. But she says, wherever the gospels preach throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so Jesus takes the small thing that she does and makes something big about it. Why, why is the breaking of the jar significant? Because ointment used to prepare someone for burial or to spice it up a few days after they were born and then put in the tomb, they would anoint them again with spices because the smell would get so rank and it gets so hot in the Middle East that they would pour spices. So the body is decomposing. You're honoring this person, but you're also stopping it from being horrifically smelly. And what you would do is you take that jar of ointment and you would crack it and you would leave it in the burial place. Now, she, didn't, she doesn't know that Jesus is about to die. We don't get that hint. But, what, but Jesus is saying her small act of obedience has greater significance than, than she can tell. And, and God is going to honor her. Now, this morning, we need to know that she will be remembered. She'll be remembered. So here we are 2,000 years later, and she is in the book. She's in the story. And the others are seen in a negative light. She's the only person here that's seen as positive. And so remember, the outside interprets the inside. The inside interprets the outside. So let's just put this together. Let's just think about what's happening here. We get the names of the other people. Look at the contrast. In the outside story, chief priests, teachers of the law, Judas. We have their titles. We have their roles. We have their names. What's her name? Woman. Woman. <laughs> Right? We don't, even, we, don't, we don't get her name. So ironically, you, you, you know the names of the guys, but they're seen in a negative light because they don't honor Jesus with their worship. The men are powerful. Everyone mentioned in that story is a somebody. Teachers of the law respected. Chief priests, respected. They are political leaders. They're financial leaders. They're civic leaders. They're honorable people. And Judas is the closest to Jesus. And yet all of them are seen in a negative light. One woman in the middle is seen as the one who brings authentic worship. Now this is revolutionary for us, living in a day where, by God's grace, in America at least, not everywhere in the world, we see men and women in a way that is positive and not completely equal. We're we're, we're on the way towards that. But we live in a culture that honors men and women for who they are and what they can do. That's not always been the case. Now, let's jump back to the first century. Women are slightly above property in the culture. That's just where it is. Who is the hero in this story? It is a woman. It is not a man. Now, if you're reading this in the first century and you're a follower of Jesus, this is counter-cultural Absolutely. This is wild. But the gospel is full of all sorts of of surprises. And so this morning, I want you to be surprised. I want you to be shaken up a bit. I want you to be thrown off because the gospel that we've heard, the gospel that is so common to our ears, it sometimes loses its bite. It sometimes loses its mystery. It sometimes loses its power. And we want to recapture that. In the moments we have, and as we go back into worship, we want to recapture the amazing good news that Jesus comes to demonstrate and to share. A couple of things that are amazing. Don't miss it. Number one, the woman models true discipleship to Jesus. Not the guys. The woman is the one who models discipleship to Jesus. She doesn't have a title other than gender. (laughs) Woman. She doesn't need a towel. And what does this say about us? We get so enamored with roles and titles and positions. And it's the one who has none of those things, but who does what is right. You see, her faith had legs. Her faith had feet. She did something. The others are talking smack and trying to get rid of Jesus. They have the titles, they have the positions, they have the place in the culture, but their hearts are far from God, and Jesus sees those who are really inside and those who look like they're inside, but as far as Jesus is concerned, are on the outside. This morning, where are you? Are you on the outside? Are you on the inside? Here's the cool part. By your title, by your outside appearance, I can't gauge where you are in relationship to Jesus. Being on a stage and playing an instrument doesn't guarantee you're walking in a holy, righteous life. Having a microphone and reading from a Bible doesn't mean that you're in right relationship with God. Being a title, a deacon, an elder, a whatever, it doesn't mean as much as we think it means. It is the way that we live that matters. And this woman demonstrates by her authentic worship she is really a follower while the others have something to learn. Uh, you know, this week I was just doing my Bible reading and came across Titus 2. This is so good. I'm going to throw up, uh, up on the screen just for time. Titus 2, write it down, 11 to 14. And this is what Paul, a, a follower of Jesus, says to a, to a young leader in the faith. He's a leader. He's already a Christian. He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. How many people? All people. The gospel is for everybody. Radical. First century, the Jews thought it was just for Jews. The guys thought it was mostly for guys. And the gospel, the grace of God has appeared for all men. This good news is for you. This good news is for someone who doesn't have a Christian background. This good news is for someone who doesn't know the the stuff to do and doesn't know when to give or when to stand or what to sing. This is for people with absolutely no heritage. Jesus is for you. You don't have to have any pre qualifiers other than to know that God cares for you and He loves you and He knows your mess and He knows what you've done and He still loves you. Those who receive the grace receive what's for all people. Now, it teaches us what does God's grace teach us? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So God's grace, God's coming, Jesus, the gospel, is not just to get you out of a future apart from God, call hell, which is horrible. It's not just about the future. If you turn to Jesus Christ and say, I want to follow him, it's not life insurance. It's not just for tomorrow or when you die. It is for now. And so Paul picks up on Jesus's logic of this This woman compared to these other guys. And God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, but yes to self-control upright lives. As we await the blessed hope, and what's the blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is going to return. We talked about that last week. There is a future. There is something to look forward to. But as we wait for it, what do we do? We worship. We glorify God in the way that we speak and in the way that we live. And and we want to catch that. It's her actions that Jesus honors, not her lip service, not her singing. But her sacrifice, the the amount and the heart with which she gave, that is what Jesus is looking for. So we're waiting for God's future hope. Who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. I think this like encapsulates what Jesus is talking about in this encounter: is that God pulls out a people and He that are out of control and He wants to bring them under His control so that we'll live self-control, peaceable lives that will move towards a godlike way of living, that will move towards a Jesus-centered existence, that over time we will worship and live in a way that honors God and honors Jesus, and honors the gospel, and doesn't make Jesus look bad. What am I saying? Brass tacks. How you live matters. It matters. What you do on Monday matters. The way you approach your faith in the workplace matters. The way that you treat parenting in relationship to what has happened in Jesus Christ matters. All this stuff that we're doing, it matters to God, and God is watching. And so he sees this woman, and he sees you. And so those of you who may be struggling through whatever, but you're pursuing Jesus, you're going in his direction, let me just encourage you. Your mom and dad may not see it. Your friends may not see it. The church may not recognize it. But you are never overlooked by Jesus. Jesus sees everything. And when it's done with an authentic heart, He recognizes you, and he remembers you. Second thing I want us to see is that the gospel includes a call to sacrifice. What she is modeling is discipleship. She is the picture of what it means to follow Jesus. So she pours out the perfume. She breaks the jar. She's all in. She is just like the poor widow, remember, in Mark chapter 12 a couple weeks ago. The poor widow is in the temple and everyone's throwing in stashes of cash and the rich are throwing in tons of money. And this poor widow, she throws in two pennies. And Jesus pulls his boys and says, she is the great one. Live like her. Why? She gave all that she had. She was all in. So when you couple that with this story, you get a balance. You see, the poor widow gives two cents and Jesus says she's the greatest. And she, this woman in this story, she gives a year's worth, 30,000, 40, 50, for some of you, $200,000 worth of money in one act in a house that no one's going to see. And Jesus says it is not the amount that you give It is your heart that is all in. And when you go all in, Jesus says, I see it. And that's worship that honors me. And that's the kind of disciple I'm looking for. She is a model of what it means to be a disciple. So the gospel and discipleship to Jesus includes a call to sacrifice. That's why every single time Mark uses the word gospel, In his writing, every time he uses the word gospel, it includes a call to sacrifice. You don't believe me? You have your Bible. Just look. This is worth the rabbit trail. Go to Mark chapter eight, like three or four pages to the left in your Bible. Mark chapter eight, go to verse 34. Mark eight, 34. I want you to see this. Every single time Mark uses the word gospel, It includes a call to sacrifice. Verse 34 says, he he called his disciples uh, along and he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must, listen, deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me, and here's the word, the gospel will save it. What good is it if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What, what's the point? That's, that's Mark's first use of the word gospel. It is a call to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Just go over to the right a little bit. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Just two more examples here. Mark 10, 28. So first he says, take up your cross. Follow me. If you go for stuff, it's going to be a waste. But if you follow me, there's going to be life. Mark 10, 28. Peter speaks up and says, we've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or feels for me, and here's a word, and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and feels, along with the caveat, persecutions. Persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. So the gospel is a call to life and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. All all the good stuff, that is the gospel. It's a call to life. It's a life in him. But with it comes deny, take up your cross, follow me. You're going to give children, brothers, mothers, feels. It's going to be costly, but in the end, you get eternal life with persecution. So the call is to both. One more. Uh, We read it last week, Mark 13. Mark 13, verse 10. We we read it, but we read a whole chapter last week. You may have overlooked this part. Mark 13, 10 says, And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. (laughs) And what does he say? Whenever you're arrested, isn't that good news? Right? Right? The gospel must be preached to all nations. Oh, by the way, when you are arrested and brought to trial, don't worry. Sounds like an oxymoron. (laughs) When you get arrested, don't worry. Why? Don't worry beforehand about what to say, but say whatever is given you at the time. It's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So hear this, the gospel is a call to be a disciple. She models what discipleship is like. Discipleship is the, the willingness to give up all things because Jesus is greater than all things. So hear me, if you choose to follow Jesus this morning and go all in like this woman, if you choose to say, Jose, I'm not going to play games anymore. I've been kind of dancing around. But this morning, it's Baptism Sunday in a a bit. We're going to open up uh, the opportunity for you to be baptized. It's your all in moment. It's your break the jar moment. It's your throwing two pennies moment. Although we're not asking you to throw money in the, the baptismal thing. It's your chance, though, to go all in. It's symbolic, yeah. It's external, yeah. It's visual, yeah. But for us now, baptism is the all in. It's the, I I am publicly saying in front of people I know and don't know, I am dead to myself. I have died with Christ. His death, I, know, I now join him in his death because his death brings life. So I rise up wet and frigid cold. Let me warn you, if you choose to get baptized this morning, it is icy cold and we rejoice in it. We didn't put ice in it, but it's just tap cold, you know, and it's 60 degrees out and it's going to be outside and there's nothing cozy and there's no little warmer and you'll get up and you'll get a towel. That's about it. To dry off and not get hypothermia, but but it's all in. Why? Because following Jesus is about all in. So that's the model of discipleship to Jesus. There is sacrifice, joy, yes, glory, yes, heaven, yes, forgiveness, yes. It's not a downer. But you need to know following Jesus is not always easy. Have you tried? Have you ever tried actually following Jesus in the way Jesus speaks to people, in the way that Jesus loves people who hate Him? By the way, these guys are going to kill Him, and He's going to say, "Father, forgive them." They don't even know what they're doing. To follow Jesus is amazing, but to follow Jesus is going to require sacrifice—sacrifice sacrifice to personal ambitions, sacrifice to sin habits, sacrifice to the things that I'm compelled to do but are harmful. But let me tell you, my friend, when you go all in, you, like this woman, will be remembered. What she did to honor Jesus is still being talked about. And whenever a man or a woman or a boy or a girl says yes to Jesus, somewhere in the trail of their life, there will be people who look at you and say, you know what? Now I know what following Jesus looks like because I see it in you. And that's the goal of the Christian life, that we would become disciples. Not perfect, not, you know, issue-free. You will always have issues, always have struggles. But there is something to authentic worship that is attractive. And if you choose to go the way of Jesus, you will find that other people will then turn towards Jesus. Because your life. The reason I'm here is because my mom and dad modeled what it looked like to follow Jesus I hope that my kids see it in Carmen and me, a model worth following. And it's not just you following Jesus, but it's the trail of people that are influenced through you when you do what this woman did. So yeah, this is about discipleship to Jesus. The gospel includes sacrifice. But finally, we need to know that evil is real, but God can turn evil around For good. Look at how the story ends. The story ends with Judas about to betray Jesus for money. There's nothing good about this. I mean, I love John, but if John sold me out for like 20 bucks, I'd be a little ticked, you know? I mean, if if my good friend who's part of the team sold me out, this would not be good news. And evil is real. So Jesus, this is encouraging to those of us trying to follow him, Jesus had one of his 12 turn his back on him. It's going to happen. Now, I hope it's not you. You know, no one wants that person to be like like Judas. But even Jesus had a Judas. And so we know that we live in a world that is broken, where even people who are walking with the Son of God will turn around and go after money rather than the gospel. But we need to know that evil doesn't come from God. Judas is totally guilty. If you read the rest of Mark, which we will in the next few weeks, Judas isn't exonerated. Judas, Judas isn't a victim of his environment. Judas is stone cold guilty of sin, and he kills himself without sorrow. And my gut is he is not in the presence of God right now. He may be, I don't know, but my gut. And what the Gospels tell us about Judas is that he had his opportunity to really become a disciple, and he chose not to. He went the way of the evil one, and he went the way of money and stuff, and he died. And that is the story for some. And evil is real, and hate is real. And so, yes, even though you're a follower of Jesus— Evil things happen to followers of Jesus. Bad things happen to good people. But what do we do with that? If we're really going to follow and become a disciple, we got to deal with evil. we got to deal with what do we do with living in a broken world where Jesus is real, but hell is real, and Jesus is real, but Satan is real, and yeah, forgiveness and love and kindness is real, but so is sin and wickedness and horrific things happen. How do we... Pulling the two. We remember that God is not evil and God is not the source of evil and God did not push Judas. He gave him an opportunity to choose and Judas chose the wrong. But even in that, hear me, God can turn it around. And that's the point. What Mark is about to tell us, hang on in the next few weeks, is everything that was about to happen, Jesus turns this evil around. And even though the chief priests, teachers of the law and Judas are going to sell the son of God out, it was God's plan from the beginning. And so Jesus is going to take even their evil thing and he's going to turn it from the good. Yes, these people choose to put Jesus on the cross, but they didn't kill him. Jesus chose to give his life. And so Jesus can, hear me, he can turn it around for you. And so maybe you've been a victim, a real victim, and hate has come your way and evil has come your way. Let me just tell you, encourage you, don't give up on God. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up on the gospel. Those things are real, and they are wrong. But Jesus is greater, and Jesus can forgive, and Jesus can heal, and Jesus can mend, and Jesus can make new. And so the right response this morning is to worship Jesus. The right response is to go all in. The right response is to break the jar and say, okay, enough surface, enough casual, I'm going all in. And this morning, there are three ways to do that. We're going to worship and we're going to sing. And I'm going to encourage you uh, to worship Jesus in extravagant ways. You know, when you're at a wedding and you just see two beautiful people up there, you smile bigger, you clap louder, you, your, your heart is full of joy as to what will happen in their future. Can I just remind you, we're, we're into something bigger than a Karsh wedding. It's bigger than Matthew and Penny. It's, it's, it's bigger than anything. Jesus died and rose again to set us free. He's the Passover lamb. He's the one who died. To that we would come to life he's the one who rescues us from egypt from slavery and sin and death and brings us out in one night in one moment when you express faith in Jesus, he sets you free right there and right then. And then he pulls you on the road of discipleship. Through the desert, so to speak, for the rest of your life, you're moving in God's direction. You begin to know his laws, his ways, his thoughts. He changes you. He tests you. He challenges you. He's with you. He provides for you. And he brings you to a land called promise. And God always keeps his promises. And so he gets us to where we need to go, which is life forever with him. My friends, following Jesus is the greatest thing. And if it is the greatest thing, how would we worship? Could I just encourage you, stimulate you? Can I just make you mad in Jesus' name? If this is real, how would we sing? If this thing were real, if Jesus is legit, how would we worship? Lord we love you sort of you're so kind of quasi awesome like how 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 would we sing if Jesus is the ruler of the universe and the savior of your soul what would you do with your hands oh god you're kind of you know okay mediocre what would you do if you really believed that Jesus is for real. Let me tell you, my friend, I'm not saying that lifting your hands higher makes you more godly or more spiritual, but I'm gonna tell you Jesus is worth it. I'm going to tell you, he's worth your extravagant, ridiculous, heartfelt worship. And for you, if that's closing your hands and bowing your head and saying, Jesus, you're awesome. If it's you and it's swinging like a monkey in a tree, I don't give a rip. Jesus, there's no trees and there's no monkeys, hypothetically speaking. But I'm here to tell you that worship ought to be extravagant and ridiculous. And people ought to be talking about your worship and saying, have they gone crazy? Because they told this woman and said she's gone crazy. Can I just encourage you today, tomorrow, this week, in your lifetime, will you get out of your comfort zone and will you worship Jesus like he is worth it?